welcome to the Gospel in Lagos, the sermon podcast of City Church Lagos. We hope this sermon answers the doubts or questions that you have about the Gospel, its relevance to your life, and the ever-evolving culture around us. Our vision is to see the City of Lagos and beyond renewed by the Gospel, and to make that happen, we need your support. You can do this by rating this podcast, following us, and giving through the Give tab on our website, citychurchlagos.com. Thank you for your generosity. We pray this sermon impacts you positively with the gospel. Again, Jesus began to teach by the lake. The crowd that gathered around him was so large that he got into a boat and sat in it out on the lake while all the people were along the shore at the water's edge. He taught them many things by parables, and in his teaching said, listen, a farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path, and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow, but when the sun came up, the plants were scorched, and they withered because they had no roots. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants so that they did not bear grain. Still, other seed fell on good soil. It came up, grew, and produced a crop, some multiplying 30, some 60, some 100 times. Then Jesus said, whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. When he was alone, the 12 and the others around him asked him about the parables. He told them, The secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you. But to those on the outside, everything is said in parables so that they may be ever seeing but never perceiving and ever hearing but never understanding. Otherwise, they might turn and be forgiven. Then Jesus said to them, don't you understand this parable? How then will you understand any parable? The farmer sows the word. Some people are like seed along the path where the word is sown. As soon as they hear it, Satan comes and takes away the word that was sown in them. Others, like seed sown on rocky places, hear the word and at once receive it with joy. But since they have no roots, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. Still others, like seed sown among thorns, hear the word, but the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desires for other things come in and choke the word, making it unfruitful. Others, like seeds sown on good soil, hear the word, accept it, and produce a crop, some 30, some 60, some 100 times what was sown. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everybody. Good morning. Welcome, welcome. Super happy to have you here. If this is your first time or you're joining us online for the first time, And so, like it has been said, we are in a series in the book of Mark. The first four chapters of the book of Mark is titled, Introducing the Son of God. And today, we are going to be looking at the first of a number of parables that we see in Mark chapter 4. And you know, when I think about the parables of Jesus, it reminds me of the movie, The Karate Kid. Don't laugh. So the Karate Kid, the original one, not the Jackie Chan one, the original one, is about a boy called Daniel who is being bullied. 
And so he meets a karate teacher, a sensei. His name is Mr. Mr. Miyagi. And his teacher agrees to teach him how to fight. But what happens when Daniel shows up? His teacher begins to assign menial tasks for him to do. Wax on. Wax, wash all his scars and wax them. Wax on. Make sure you do it like this. Go and sand the floor. Go and paint the fence. And Daniel is understandably, he's confused, he's angry, he's frustrated. But eventually, his teacher shows him that when he was doing those tasks, he was actually learning the foundational moves of karate. So wax on is not just washing, but it's... And by doing them so many times, they had become ingrained in him. In other words, those chores were not random. They were actually part of his training all along. And so Daniel goes on to win the tournament, defeat his enemies, and get the girl. Well, here's the point. <laughs> Profundity is often hidden within the mundane. The parables of Jesus are like this as well. They are simple. They are easy to understand. But within them are a wealth, a treasure of timeless lessons about the kingdom of God. In the parables, we see, like someone said, that the word of God is shallow enough for a lamb to wade in. But at the same time, deep enough for an elephant to swim in. And today, we are going to be looking at a very popular parable. Maybe the most popular parable. The parable of the sower. For some of us who may not know the story, it's about a farmer who goes out to sow, like we've heard, and the seed falls on different types of ground. But if we look at it a little bit deeper, it's a story about things working the way they were supposed to work. How do I mean? If you're a farmer, the only reason that you plant crops is because you want a harvest. That's why the field exists to bear fruit. And human beings are like this as well. That's a reason why we exist. The Bible tells us that reason. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 16b, it tells us that not only were we made by Christ, we were created for Christ. And so in the same way, a field fulfills its purpose when it bears fruit. We fulfill our purpose the more we become like Jesus. Does that make any sense? Every other purpose is secondary. And that's what is happening in the sower. Jesus is saying the same thing. He's putting us and a field side by side. And he's telling us this. That the same way a field not bearing fruit is an anomaly. Human beings not becoming like Christ is also an anomaly. And it's not the first time the Bible does this. In Genesis chapter 3, when Adam sins to demonstrate how far he had deviated from his purpose by his sin, what happens? The ground becomes unfruitful. Genesis says, cursed is the ground because of you. It's not the last time the Bible does this as well. In Galatians chapter 5, Paul calls the process of becoming more and more like Christ. What? Bearing the fruit of the Spirit. And so today, from the parable of the sower, we are going to learn about how we can be fruitful. But we'll do so in a roundabout way. My grandfather used to say something, that experience is the best teacher. But the school fees are very expensive. It's far better to learn from other people's experience. And so Jesus gives us three examples of unfruitfulness in this parable. And it's my prayer that by studying what they did wrong, we will learn what to do right. And so this sermon is titled, How Not to Bear Fruit. 
But before we continue, let us just go to God together in prayer. Spirit divine, attend our prayer and make this house your home. Descend with all your gracious power. Oh, come, great spirit, come. Come as the fire and purge our hearts like sacrificial flame. Come as the wind with rushing sound and Pentecostal grace. Come as the dew and sweetly bless this consecrated hour. May barrenness rejoice to know your fertilizing power. Spirit divine, attend our prayer and make our hearts your home. Descend with all your gracious power. Oh, come, great spirit, come. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's jump into it. There are four types of soil in this passage. Three of them are bad soil. Only one of them is good soil. And some people interpret this parable as referring only to conversion, becoming born again. So the first results are not Christians. And just the last one is for Christians. But I think it goes beyond that. Because first of all, the word of God is coming to us every day, not just when we become Christians. And secondly, we never outgrow our need for the gospel. We talk about it a lot in City Church, that repentance and faith are the rhythm of the Christian life, regardless of what point you are in your walk with Christ. So it applies to all of us. And Jesus gives the interpretation of this parable. And initially, he tells us that the seed is the word of God. Verse 14, the sower sows the word. It's the word of God that makes us bear the fruit of becoming like Jesus. If becoming like Jesus is the goal, the words of Jesus are the vehicle that move us towards that goal. But we also see that it's not just about the seed. The condition of the soil is also important. And Jesus uses four locations where the seed fell to tell us different things, different scenarios we can learn from. And this will be the four points of this sermon. The seed fell, seed fell on the path, on rocky soil, among sons, and in good soil. And so we'll take a look at them one by one. First of all, the path. Verse 15 says, Some people are like seed along the path where the world is sown. As soon as they hear it, Satan comes and takes away the word that was sown in them. And you know, this first category is a, is a category that, number one, people are very sure that they are nothing. But also, they are also very sure that they know people that are in this category. It reminds me of the story of David in 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel chapter 12. He had done something really, really terrible. And then, he now heard the story of somebody else that did something bad. And David was angry. Until the prophet Nathan, who was telling him the story, said, Oga, I'm talking about you. When it comes to this first soil, we are quick to think that it's other people. But the truth is that there are a lot of us on this table. Here's a short quiz. How many of us can remember the sermon from two weeks ago? <laughs> well, the sermon from four weeks ago, the Bible says, as soon as they hear it, Satan comes and takes away the word that was sown in them. 
And there are a few reasons we can see why the word, why the word of God is stolen away. The first one is in Matthew's account of this parable. You know, Matthew and Luke also have the story of the, par- the parable of the sower. And what Mark says, Matthew says, in Matthew 13 verse 19, he says, When anyone hears the message about the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what is sown in their hearts. And this is the soil, seed sown along the path. The first reason is that they do not understand the Bible. Now, my family homeschools. And so because of that, I've read a fair bit about education. And here's what researchers have discovered about reading comprehension. That children who have been read to are far more successful at reading than those who have not. And here's their conclusion, that the key to comprehension is background knowledge. It's because these children have been read to a lot that they are better able to understand what is going on when they start reading. And if you're a parent here with small kids, you're welcome. But here's how it applies to us. Sometimes the reason we do not understand the word of God is because we are not reading the word of God enough. Sometimes the reason we are confused when we hear the sermon on Sundays is because the only time we come to contact with the word of God is during the sermon on Sundays. Back in the day, the way pastors, one of the ways pastors knew that a congregant was in big trouble, spiritual trouble, was when you visited them and you saw dust on their Bible. But because, of course, technology has made the Bible more accessible. So it's very easy for us to delude ourselves into thinking that just because we have new version on our phones, that we are actually reading the Bible. And what happens when we finally come into church, the only time when we hear God's word, is that we are hearing the word of God, but there is no background knowledge. There is no context. There are no connections being made that can draw the word of God in. And so what we hear remains on the surface. And before we know, we've forgotten it. We struggle to understand the word of God because we are not engaging enough with the word of God. The second reason why the word of God is stolen is actually a bit subtle. So please stay with me. If we look at the soils in verse 4 to 8, there seems to be a gradual improvement in the outcome. Let's look at verse 4 to 8. 4 to 8. In the first soil, it says that the seed remained on the surface. The birds ate it up. By the second time, it germinates and grows a bit. Verse 5. In the third one, it grows where it doesn't bear fruit. And in the fourth one, it finally bears fruit. And so it looks to me that there is something happening in the latter soils that is not happening in the former. Does that make any sense? So we are still looking at the first soil, but let's go to the second soil a bit. What is different about it according to Jesus? He says in verse 16 that others hear the word and at once receive it with joy. So I think it is fair to infer that part of the reason the seed by the parts does not grow is because it's not received with joy. There is no expectation, no eagerness, no excitement about receiving the word of God. And here's why. We are not excited because we did not assign enough importance to the word of God. When we look at the Bible, we see that there is a big difference 
the way, between the way the Bible speaks of itself and the way that we treat it. That's a psychological theory called Maslow's Hierarchy of Needs. It ranks human needs. Can we have the picture up, please? It ranks human needs in five levels. And from the bottom up, the needs are physiological needs, things like food, clothing, shelter, safety needs. I'm blocking it. Love and belonging needs in the third level. Esteem needs. And finally, self-actualization being all that you can be. And the idea is that we are more concerned with satisfying the base levels first before we begin to think of satisfying the next level. And I think that far too often, we think of the word of God in terms of the top three levels of the pyramid. The word of God is about how I can feel love. It's about how I can be all I can be. But here's how the Bible testifies of itself. It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Do you see? We are looking at the Bible on level three to five, but the Bible is saying, I'm on level one. And that's where expectation comes from. Realizing, like the Bible says in Deuteronomy chapter 32, that these are not idle words for you. They are your life. What happens when we begin to place this kind of value on the word of God? We begin to receive the word of God with joy. It will be like Jeremiah in chapter 15 when he said, Your words came and I ate them. They were my joy and my heart's delight, for I bear your name, O Lord God Almighty. Here's an application for the Sunday service. How are we preparing to receive the word of God with joy when we are coming to church? Can we begin to cultivate an expectation to receive from God? And don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that everybody should be like Yobo, as enthusiastic as Yobo, and be shouting, come on now. Well, here's what I'm saying. What's it, what you can do? You can pray about the service. Ask God to speak to you. Let it dawn on you that you have an appointment with the God of the universe. Expect something from God. But there's one more thing we see in this passage about this soil. We can look at this issue of not retaining the word of God as normal. It happens to everybody. But Jesus tells us that there is something, or rather someone, sinister behind it. The devil is ultimately responsible for stealing the word of God. C.S. Lewis, I'm sorry, I always quote him, but he actually wrote a really good book about the devil's devices. It's called The Screwtape Letters. We should, all, of us, all of us should read it. And he said something. He said that the devil has succeeded in making people either become obsessed with him or else dismiss him. And I think we tend to fall into the second category. And so even though the Bible tells us in 1 Peter 5 verse 8 to be alert and be of sober mind because your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking for whom to devour. In our heads, the devil is a buffoon. Remember the song we used to sing back in those days? Devil, I see near you. Devil, I see near you. Spiritual, make it make sense. Spiritually, mentally, academically, economically. <laughs> Socially, physically. 
Make him make sense. And it's funny, but that's pretty much our attitude towards the devil. Guys, the devil is a higher intelligence that is thousands and thousands of years old. Like an author says, Satan is a master strategist. Someone who has been patiently studying man since the garden and keeping meticulous notes. He never misses a chance to exploit the fragility of his opponents and has spent the last several thousand years developing sophisticated tactics to get what he wants. Satan never stops honing his craft. But not only that, he actively, maliciously hates you. There's a difference between evil and malice. Let me explain. There's a movie back in the day, it's called Street Fighter. It's based off the video game. And in the movie, the, um, one of the characters, a lady called Chun-Li, was explaining to the bad guy why she was against him. And she talked about how he killed her father, he burns down her village. And the guy told her, I'm sorry, I don't remember your father. And she was shocked. And he told her, see, the day I came to your village was the most important day of your life. But for me, it was Tuesday. That's evil. It's wicked, but it's no person now. The devil's own is different. He hates you, Gloria, personally. He hates you, Ruby, personally. He hates you, Toye, personally. And he has spent the last thousand years perfecting his strategies to get what he wants. And we see one of the tactics, one of those strategies in this passage. Jesus says that he steals the word of God from our hearts. And be like, ah, ah, is that the strategy? The famous, sophisticated strategy, thousands of years old. But think about it. If the kingdom of darkness is so closely monitoring you, so as to steal the word of God, as soon as you hear it, then it must mean that the word of God is really, really important. It must mean that the word of God really can transform us. It must mean that the biggest disservice we can do to our lives is to ignore the word of God. Is it not ironic, brothers and sisters, that the devil cares about the word of God more than we do? And Satan's aim, his goal, if you're not a Christian, is to destroy you. But if you're a Christian, he wants to do the next best thing. What is Satan's goal? And please listen, because there's something I may be surprised about. Satan's goal is to make you slothful. Now, when we think about sloth, our mind goes to laziness, yeah? But that's not how the church has historically viewed sloth. Sloth, or acidia in Latin, is not referring primarily to physical laziness, but to spiritual laziness. Yes, how St. Thomas Aquinas described it. It is a sadness towards your own spiritual good. Sloth is a procrastination of your sanctification that ends up making you ineffective and unfruitful. And it manifests in two ways. The first one is this. We do not do what is required of us. As when it's time to read your Bible, you'll be like, ah, 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 Bible. Time to pray. You have set so many alarms. You just keep snoozing it, snoozing it, snoozing it. You don't want to do what you ought to do. 
But the second way sloth manifests is when we pour ourselves into something else. It's a constant state of restlessness. Doing everything apart from what you should be doing. Slot is checking notifications when you should be reading your Bible. It is being in short and the sermon is going on and you're on social media. You're just scrolling, scrolling. Slot is being too busy to come to church. And we ask you, you've not been around. You're not coming for GC. What's, up? What's happening? And you say, oh, I've been, so bu- I've been busy. No, you've been slothful. You can work really hard. I've been slothful. And eventually what happens is that our heart becomes hard ground like the path. You cannot focus long enough on the word of God for it to make a difference. Like someone said the other day, the issue is not a lack of wonders, but a lack of wanderers. Am I talking to you? Are you procrastinating your sanctification? We've learned so much this year about practices that can help us. Silence and solitude, prayer, fasting. Are you doing any of them? Or you're just postponing it? Postponing it. I'll do it later. Are you experiencing a sadness towards what is good for you spiritually? There's no lack of wonders in God's word. It's full of wondrous things like the psalmist says in Psalm 119. The problem is that we have lost our sense of wonder. So we cannot receive the word of God with joy. My brothers and sisters, the text also shows us that it's not enough to receive the word of God with joy. There are still other things required. And we see this in the second point. Jesus says that the second soil fell, in the second, the seed, in the second, the second scenario, the seed fell on rocky places. And Jesus goes on to tell us the meaning in verse 16. He says, Others, like seeds sown on rocky places, hear the word of God and at once receive it with joy. But since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. And if you notice, let me just say this, Jesus twists the metaphor a bit. And so he's referring now to the person, not the word, as what has no roots. Verse 17, it says, since they have no roots. And please keep that in mind because it's going to make what I'm saying a little bit clearer. But still, in this scenario, there is no unfruitfulness. And Jesus tells us that the reason for this is trouble or persecution. Now, the Bible is full of passages that tell us that tribulation has good effects on us. James chapter 1 verse 2 to 3 says, Consider it pure joy, brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. But here we see something else. Sometimes trouble actually makes people unfruitful. It doesn't always make us stronger. I'm going to tell you a story. Let me tell you a story about Uncle Opus. Uncle Opus was a member of my father's mission team in the 80s. For context, my father did a lot of evangelistic work in the 70s and 80s in what is now Rivers and Bielsa State. And so what their practice was that when they went to a village to preach, 
they will leave a member of the team behind to kind of disciple the new converts, establish them in their faith. He will pastor them for a bit, and then he will leave and join, the, join them. And so in 1982, they came to a village in Bielsa State called Perimabiri. The place was terrible. I'm sorry. It was so muddy. For context, even as we speak today, it's not still connected to the national grid. So imagine what it looked like in 1982. But not only that, there were women in the village that wanted to rape them. I said what I said. <laughs> it was a mess. And so eventually it was announced that Uncle Lopus will be the pastor of this new church plant. Uncle Pus raised up his hand and said, <laughs> I just say, let me say my own now. If people will leave me here, I will backslide. He was saying what we know intimately, that trying times sometimes make people fall away. It doesn't always make us stronger. It didn't make Uncle Pus stronger. But why does the plant in the second soil not thrive? We see a clue in verse 17. It says, because they have no roots, they last only a short time. What do roots do? Roots have many functions, but two of them are to anchor the plants and also for the plant to get water and nutrients from the ground. And so in this scenario, because the roots are not deep enough, it becomes a problem. What does someone with deep roots look, look like? The Bible tells us in Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 8, that they will be like a tree planted by the water that sends out its roots by the stream. It does not fear when heat comes. Its leaves are always green. It has no worries in a year of drought and never fails to bear fruit. How do these deep roots come about? The previous verse, verse 7, seven tells us that blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord, whose confidence is in him. So, if trouble exposes the fact that our roots may not be deep, here's what it means. That trouble aims to undermine our trust and confidence in Christ. This is why even though Mark qualifies it here as trouble or persecution that comes because of the word, in Luke's account in chapter 8 verse 13, he just calls it times of testing. Because at the root of every trouble, the devil is there asking the same question that he asked Eve in the garden in Genesis chapter 3. Did God really say this? The devil's aim in trouble is to overwhelm us, to inundate us in such a way that we begin to doubt the character of God. In the midst of trouble, trouble makes us ask, why is this happening to me? Am I the only one? Why can't I catch a break? Why is my life like this? Why? 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 And in the silence, we hear a still small voice, a silent whisper. That's because Jesus cannot be real. Or if he's real, he doesn't care about you. Trouble tells us over and over again that God cannot be trusted. That God does not care about us. And this can be so overwhelming. Now, if we do not have deep roots, we will not survive it. He says in verse, he says that the plants withered because they had no roots. So the question is this. How 
Can we be the type of person that doesn't wither or thrives in the face of adversity? And there are a number of things. Actually, last year, Emmanuel preached a number of sem- two sermons about it in our series, Wait. The titles of the sermon are How to Survive When Life Happens and also How to Thrive When Life Happens. He said a lot of things there, but I'll just say a little bit. Here's where we can start from. First of all, it's not when the sun comes up that the plant goes starts trying to grow roots. <laughs> it happens a long time before then. The way to survive the trouble ahead is to begin to prepare for it now. How? Psalm 1, talking about the blessed man, echoes Jeremiah chapter 17 about a flourishing tree. The verses are almost identical. A tree planted by the streams of water that yields fruit. And here's what he says about him in the next verse. He says, his delight, in the previous verse, verse 2, his delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. So you see, the man with deep roots, like the shallow soil, receives the word of God with joy. But he doesn't stop there. He goes on to meditate on it day and night. Brothers and sisters, if you want deep roots, begin to meditate on the gospel. Begin to remind yourself every day of the promises of God. Tell yourself every day, God is good. He will sustain me. He will take care of me. He's working out everything in my life for his glory and my good. And when trouble comes up, we will have a steadfast anchor to hold on that we are loved unconditionally by God and he has the scars in his hands to prove it. Here's something else that happens when we meditate on God's word in the midst of our pain. Something about our perspective begins to change. A different view of life begins to emerge. We begin to see God at work, not only in spite of our pain, but through our pain. My father died in 2014. He had cancer. Before he passed, he had spent some time in India doing radiotherapy. And so when he came back, he was talking to us about how he thought through this affliction. And he said, of course, on the one hand, he wondered what's happening, what's going on. But then he said, he thought, in India, I've had the opportunity to preach to my doctors and to people that I otherwise would never have met if I was not sick. And then he said something I will never, ever forget. He said, that if this was the purpose for this illness, then I thank God for this cancer. That's what happens when our souls are deep in the word of God. Brothers and sisters, I will not lie to you and tell you that this thing is easy. It's not easy at all. But that's why we need each other. Remember what Pastor Femi told us at the beginning of the year about Cedar Redwoods? Does anybody remember? By the pathway, you see? <laughs> I know you're forgetting. Please put a picture. Do you remember it now? <laughs> Their roots are not too deep. But he told us that because they stick together, they are able to stand tall. There are times when we are, still, we are too weak. And like Tommy showed us, we are like the paralyzed man. And we need four friends to take us to Jesus. To speak life into us and encourage us. 
in Exodus chapter 17, the Israelites are fighting and Moses has to raise up his hands for the battle to be won. And at a point, he gets really tired. But then something beautiful happens. The Bible says that Aaron and Hor, when Moses' hands grew tired, Aaron and Hor took a stone and put it under him. And he sat on it. But they didn't stop there. It says they held his hands up, one on the one side, one on the other side, so that his hands remained steady till sunset. This is why we exist as a body, to lift up the hands that faint and to strengthen the weak knees. Look, you may be going through a lot, but that's not the time for you to stay away from God's people. Press into community. Ask for help. Lean on your brothers and sisters. And even though the enemy comes against you like a flood, God will use his people to raise up a standard against him. But the enemy doesn't always come against us like a flood, does he? And that's what we see in the third soil. He says, other seed fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants so that they did not bear grain. Here's the thing about the rocky soil and the thorns. The aim in both cases is the same. For us to be unfruitful. But why troubles attack is often sudden, in this case, it's more insidious. It's like the story of boiling a frog. They say if you want to boil a frog and put it in hot water, it's going to jump out. But if you put it in room temperature water, it's chilling. And gradually increase the temperature. By the time the frog realizes, it will be too late. The thorns don't start choking the seed from day one. They are still growing together. But slowly but surely, the thorns block out everything that the field, this, 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 the plant needs to survive. And Jesus identifies three related issues as thorns. In verse 19, he says, the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desires for other things come in and choke the word and make it unfruitful. It's often very hard to notice. Because what causes, what often causes the worries of this life are often legitimate. There's a story in Luke chapter 14 and Matthew chapter 22. Jesus, um, not Jesus, a king invited people to a banquet. And what happened was that they began to make excuses. In verse 18 to 20, there's a song about it. I cannot come to your banquet. Don't trouble me now. I have married a wife. I have but me a cow. I have fields and commitments that cost me a pretty sum. There's nothing, pray hold me excused, I cannot come. There's nothing inherently wrong with these things. But because they have become more important than something that should have had more value, they have become twisted. And the word Jesus uses here to describe himself the desires for other things is a word that is more accurately rendered as over desires. There are legitimate desires. It's referring to legitimate desires that have become twisted because we have made them the driving force of our lives. It's a good thing to want to get married. It's a good thing to desire children, to want to be liked, to get that promotion. But there's a way we can desire them, we can want them, that places them higher in our hearts than they should be. And how do we know that we are doing this? Anxiety. 
what Jesus calls the worries of this life. We begin to worry because if we do not get the thing that we want, then life has no meaning. Or maybe you do get it, but it still doesn't solve the anxiety problem because what if you lose it? And so in a sense, anxiety is a diagnostic tool. It shows us. The thing we are anxious about shows us what we have put our hope in. And as long as that hope is in things that can change, our lack of control over the future will always make us anxious. And the chief way we mitigate, we try to solve this problem of fear of the unknown, is what Jesus refers to as the deceitfulness of wealth. Now, Jesus doesn't say wealth. He talks about the deceitfulness of wealth. How does wealth deceive? Wealth tells you that you are the captain of your soul and the master of your feet. That because you have money, you have control over your life. Because let's face it, there are very few problems that cannot be solved with money. But the deceitfulness of wealth is not something that only affects rich people. Poor people as well can be deceived by wealth. We can look at things through the lens of money. Everything that is happening, because I don't have money. And you say things like, because I don't have money, instead of you to call me foodie, you call me long truth. <laughs> Everything that happens is because you don't have money. If only I had enough money, everything will be okay. And the singer encapsulated this when he said the lyrics, if we don't make money, waiting, we gain. Because we are thinking, if only I have money, then life will be fine. At the end of the day, anxiety and the deceitfulness of wealth are doing the same thing. Like Jesus said, not Jesus, like somebody said, they are asking us to imagine a future in which God is absent. Anxiety deceives you by telling you that you are helpless and cannot trust God. Wealth deceives you by telling you that you are capable and you do not need God. But here's the dangerous part. The plant is still growing. You're still in church. You're still serving. But you're not becoming more and more like Jesus. And this worries me because what Jesus calls tones is what I call goals. This illusion that a man's life consists of the abundance of things that he has. And yes, the plant is growing. We can see it from the outside. But it never bears fruit. Can you relate to this? Have you slowly stopped believing that becoming like Jesus is the purpose for your life? Is your heart becoming more and more content and satisfied and happy in other things apart from Jesus? Or the idea of getting those things? We are slowly being choked by our thorns. But we do not know. And at the end of the day, the devil doesn't care what makes us unfruitful, whether it's by the path or by the thorns or by the rocky soil, because the destiny of an unfruitful field is still the same. Isaiah chapter 5, verse 5 to 6 says this, Now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge, and it will be destroyed. I will break down its wall and it will be trampled. I will make it a wasteland, neither pruned nor cultivated. And brass and thorns will grow there. I will command the clouds 
not to rain on it. The destiny of an unfruitful field is destruction. The writer of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 6 says the same thing. He says in verse 6 to 7, 7 to 8, he says that land that drinks the rain falling on it produces a crop that is useful and receives, receives the blessing of God. But the land that produces thorns and thistles is worthless and is in danger of being cursed. In the end, it will be burned. But thank God, Hebrews chapter 6 does not end in verse 8. In verse 9, the writer goes on to say, even though we speak like this, dear friends, we are convinced of better things in your case. Things that have to do with salvation. We are convinced. We know. We are sure. And someone here may be asking, how is he sure? I see myself in all three categories. How is he sure that my destiny is not destruction? The writer of Hebrews is sure. Because for the Christian, our fruitfulness ultimately does not depend on our ability but on the ability of somebody else. Our fruitfulness does not depend on our ability but the ability of somebody else. Like Hebrews chapter 6 verse 8 says, we were on productive fields, we were worthless. What we deserved was crosses and a judgment of fire. But there was someone who said, I will take their unfruitfulness so that they can have my flourishing. I will hang on the cross and take the cost that they deserve so they can have the blessing I deserve. Jesus, the Lord of the harvest, the one who was always fruitful, suffered death for our sake so that he could secure our fruitfulness. That's why he could tell his disciples, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you might go and bear fruit. Fruits that will last. And that's what we see in the final soil. It says that still others, verse 8, other seed fell on good soil. It came up, grew, produced the crop. Some multiplying 30, some 60, some 100 times. And don't let the numbers fully confuse you. In those days, a good harvest at best for wheat was just 10 times. And so even the smallest number here, 30, is something that is entirely supernatural. It's not something a field could have produced by itself. It's not something that human beings could have done either. Yes, a farmer was needed to walk the ground and manure it, but there was something critical for an abundant harvest that no human being could have achieved. What the field needed for an abundant harvest was abundant rain. Remember, this was first century Israel. They did not have advanced irrigation systems. If there was no rain, there was no question whatsoever of a harvest. And the Bible shows us a picture of what happens when God sends abundant rain on the field. George chapter 2 verse 23 says, Be glad, O children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God. For he has given you the early rain for your vindication. He has poured down for you abundant rain. The early and the latter rain as before. And what happens? The next verse says, The threshing floors will be filled with grain. The vats shall overflow with wine and oil. And if a physical field needs rain for a harvest, the fields of our life need rain as well. 
And the Bible tells us in Isaiah chapter 44 that this rain is the rain of the Holy Ghost. Verse 43 says, I will pour, Isaiah 44 verse 3, he says, I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing upon your descendants. What happens when the spirit is poured on us? Isaiah chapter 32 says that when the spirit is poured on us, the desert will become a fertile field. And even the fertile field will look like a forest. What we need, brothers and sisters, is to be drenched, or in the language of the Bible, to be filled with the Holy Spirit. It is the help of the Holy Spirit that makes a difference. It's your heart like the part, and you cannot remember the word of God. Every time you forget, the Bible says that the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to remembrance all that I have said about you. It's your heart like the rocky soil, and you are overwhelmed by the troubles of this life. The Bible says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 16, that there is a joy given by the Holy Spirit that helps us in the midst of severe suffering. You feel like you're not bearing fruit and you're choked by the, by everything. You're choked by the deceitfulness of wealth. The Bible tells us in Romans chapter 8 verse 13 that by the help of the Spirit, we can fight against our desires and live and be victorious. What we need is God's Spirit working in us. What we need is God's Spirit working in us both to will and to do of His good pleasure. What happens? When we are filled with the Spirit, we begin to bear fruit. The fruit of the Spirit, the fruit that the Spirit brings, comes in our life. Yes, it takes time, but we begin to see growth. We begin to see that we are becoming more and more like Jesus. Oh, what we need is the help of the Spirit. The Bible talks about the man in 2 Chronicles chapter 26, verse 15. He says that Uzziah became strong because he was marvelously helped by God. Somebody here needs this help from God. Is there anybody here that will say, God, I need this marvelous help. I'm at the end of my rope. If God doesn't do it, it won't get done. If God does not help me, I have nowhere else to go. Maybe your situation is different. And you've actually been bearing fruit. You've been good soul. And there are people like that here. Guess what? There is still more. You can still become more fruitful. The fertile field can still become a forest. You can bear 60 and 100 fold. You too need the help of God. How? How? How do we get this help? The Bible tells us, just ask. Tell God, I am weak, but you are mighty. My life is a desert, but you can make me fruitful. You can breathe life into these dry bones. You can make this grave a garden. Help me, help me, help me. Can we rise to our feet? Thanks for listening. If you found this sermon helpful, we hope you join us in the mission of renewing Lagos with the gospel by sharing it rating this podcast and following us. These actions help us reach more people with the gospel. You can also connect with us on various social media platforms via the handle at City Church Lagos. City Church, 
love jesus love people love lagos